Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, verses 12 through 13, chapter 2, verse 2 through 4, and chapter 3, verse 1 and 17 through 18. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen or cry out to you? Violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks on the end and will not prove, prove it prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet on Shochanoth. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop falls and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. Amen. Thank you. Uh, so over the last several weeks, if you've been with us, you know that we have been uh, in the middle of our series, our Lent series, uh, considering the minor prophets uh, who the, were speaking to the people of God uh, in Judah and in Israel. And thus far, if you've been with us, we have considered uh, the reality that God's people, they were actually under God's judgments during the time of these prophets uh, as a result of their unfaithfulness, of their unrighteousness, uh, as a result of their rebellion. And so what we've seen over and over again is that we have been confronted with the ways that we too, much like Israel and Judah of that time, we too have run from God and that we also need to turn back toward him in order that one day when this coming day of the Lord is upon us, that day might be a day of joy and not sorrow, one of rejoicing and not judgment. However, what we're going to look at today as we come to the prophet, the minor prophet Habakkuk, is something a little bit different than what we've seen. Because what we're going to see is that Habakkuk today is addressing something different. See, from the, the beginning to the end of the Bible, from the beginning of church history until now, there's been a real tension for the people of God. There's been something that has been wrestled through time and time again, over and over again, 
And that is the main topic of Habakkuk, which is the issue of suffering. How is it that God claims to be a good God, and yet time and time again, we see and experience suffering? How can a good God allow suffering to befall us, especially his people? Why does he not keep such things from us? In the words of Habakkuk in verse 2 there, how long, Lord, must I call for help to you, but you don't listen? That question, I bet, resonates with many of us. And what I hope we see today is how understanding suffering in our life actually says almost everything about what we believe about God, about his goodness, about his power and his authority, and whether or not we ultimately trust that he will keep his promises. So let's consider all of that by considering the lessons of Habakkuk, by looking at the presence of suffering, the promise in suffering, and then finally the glorious joy of suffering. Okay, so first, the presence of suffering. What's happening in Habakkuk? Habakkuk is writing in the final years of Israel's southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, there is this imminent threat from Babylon. Uh, the Babylonian Empire was upon them. It was, it was, um, this threat was upon them. It was coming. And at this point, Judah had seen what took place in the northern kingdom of Israel. And what they'd seen happen is that the Assyrians had conquered this northern kingdom. Judah now was finding themselves in a similar kind of situation than what this northern kingdom of Israel had found themselves in. Because Judah was, at this point, also having the same kinds of idolatry, the same kind of injustices that brought the other kingdom under judgment and ultimately fall. Habakkuk knew that this judgment from the Babylonians was coming. But a unique feature of the book of Habakkuk is that it's actually a conversation between the prophet and God. In fact, Habakkuk actually never addresses the people of God. Instead, Habakkuk is wrestling with God concerning the issues of suffering and injustice and the wickedness that he sees everywhere around him. And in the first two chapters of the book, Habakkuk is bringing to God his lament. And in particular, he's bringing to God the anger that he's experiencing as he looks amongst God's people and sees all the uh, pervasive violence and injustice amongst God's people. And this is what he said in verses uh, two and four. He said, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that the justice is perverted. In other words, God, you see all this wickedness. You see all the suffering that's around me and amongst your people. They have rejected your law. They are violent. They are unjust. And yet you've done nothing. Why do you allow it to persist? God responds to Habakkuk in verse 5, and he says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if I told you. And then he goes on to say, there are going to be terrible, there are terrible things that are happening amongst my people. And so as a result, Habakkuk, 
I'm going to use Babylon as a tool of judgment against my people. Now, when Habakkuk hears that God's going to use the Babylonians as a tool of judgment against his people, Habakkuk is utterly perplexed by this idea. And in verses 12 and 13, you can almost kind of hear the tone in his voice where he says, whoa, 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 whoa. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment? You, my rock, you've ordained them to punish? And then he goes on to basically say, they're even worse than we are. Why would you allow that nation to come here and destroy us? And ultimately, Habakkuk, in the end, he's left with the exact same predicament. Meaning, God is currently, according to Habakkuk, allowing suffering, allowing injustice and wickedness to prevail. But now, God's going to send the wicked people of Babylon to come and conquer the wicked people of Israel, which in the end still leaves wickedness, still leaves suffering intact. God is going to allow suffering to persist. And it's a very real tension for Habakkuk. But isn't it also true that that's very much a tension we experience even now? I mean, Habakkuk is struggling through this in his situation in Israel, but his tension is amongst us here. How is God a good God, yet seems fine to allow suffering and injustice to persist? How does a good God allow ongoing wars and violence to take the life of innocent people? How does a good God allow nearly six million people in the world to die of COVID over the last two years, even closer to home? Why would God, a good God, allow the United States to experience the greatest death toll of any country with nearly a million Americans dead? For some, that's even more disturbing because there's a belief that we're a Christian nation. Should God not protect us all the more as a result? How does a good God allow the continued pervasiveness of gun violence in our city impacting many of us, even in this room? How does a good God allow the continued drug epidemic to continue with our neighbors, even here in our neighborhood, suffering with addiction, Right now, just half a block at the bottom of Park and 115 on my way home, I'm going to see a group of guys shooting up. Why does God allow such things to persist? Why does God allow sickness and death to befall us, even amongst those who, faith, who are faithful to him? The presence of suffering is a very real tension when we claim a good God. In those words of Habakkuk, I would imagine resonate, how long, O oh Lord, must I call to you, but you don't listen? Well, God gives Habakkuk another response. Specifically, he gives him a promise. Let's take a look at that promise in suffering. So in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. Just stop there for a second. So in other words, pay very close attention, Habakkuk, to what I'm about to say, because you need to make sure everyone understands this. He continues, For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. 
Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Let me stop there for a moment. God's response to Habakkuk is to say, there is an appointed time when all of this is going to make sense. When you realize the plan, Habakkuk, you will see it will not prove false. And though you might think that that plan ought to be revealed and be obvious to you now, God's promising it's going to linger. You're going to have to wait to experience my plan fully. But in the end, though you need to wait, it most certainly will come and it will not come a minute too late. And what is that plan? Verse 4. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Uh, I didn't put the rest of the God's response there just to keep it brief. But in essence, God goes on to say, you're right. The Babylonians, they are a wicked people. They are puffed up. They are proud. And their actions and desires are unrighteous. But though suffering will come to you, the righteous person will live by faithfulness. See, the story of Israel is ultimately going to be a story of exile. God would judge them through the Babylonians who basically enslave the people of Israel. They take them back to Babylon as forced labor. Labor that Israel would be there in captivity for decades. But through their faithfulness, there's this promise of restoration. And I want to speak to that promise of restoration that's to come for a moment. Because if you fast forward, the prophet Jeremiah preaches to the people while they are in exile. Okay, so we're fast forwarding. Babylon has come. They have conquered the people. They've taken them in exile. And now to this exiled people, Jeremiah speaks. And he speaks what might be some of the most famous words uh, in, the, in the Bible. There are mugs and bumper stickers and t-shirts uh, plastered with these verses. In Jeremiah 29, this is what Jeremiah says to the people. If you guys want to throw this up there, I think I put it in there. It says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years uh, are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Here's, here is the verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. In other words, you are going to experience exile and you're going to live under the weight of oppression, but lest you despair, I have not forgotten about you. I will restore you and bring you back to this land. Now, that sounds like an absolutely beautiful promise. Here's the tension of that passage. Those who have heard or would have heard the things that Habakkuk would have said and wrote, those who heard the words of Jeremiah here in this passage in Jeremiah 29, many of them likely did not experience that promise. Habakkuk is speaking to those who are about to be conquered, and some of them are going to die. Jeremiah is talking to a group of people who, if you just heard me read, 
will be in captivity for 70 more years, which means that many, maybe most of the people that heard those words from God, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. People that heard those words, many of them died in captivity. Where were God's promises? What exactly is God promising if the very thing that they desired, they never experienced? This was a very real tension for Israel. But I would imagine for many of us, we're probably familiar with that same kind of situation. We have heard the promises of God, and yet they do not seem fulfilled or to ever actually come. You know, God, you said that you were my protector, and yet I've experienced violence or abuse. You said you were my provider, yet month after month, I'm struggling to pay the rent and to keep food on the table. God, you you said that you were my healer, yet I remain sick and death surrounds me. You said that you were my peace, and yet I am still on this anti-anxiety medication. You said you were my comfort, and yet time and time again, I feel inconsolable. You said that you were my freedom, that you give freedom for the captives, and yet I am trapped in this cycle of addiction. Or I look around the world and even in my own city and I see the suffering of others who are being trafficked. Where is their freedom? You said you were a God of justice and yet every day we experience the burdens and the weight of injustice both in our city and around the world. You promised to prosper me. You promised not to harm me and to lead me out of exile, out of suffering and yet here I am, suffering. God is either a liar or he's completely incompetent. When we look at these promises this way, if we read Jeremiah 29 and passages like it, and we assume that those promises are to be experienced now, then God's a liar or he's completely incompetent. If the people who heard Jeremiah's words promised to them as something that they would experience, ignoring that whole 70 years thing, they too would have made God out to be a liar or made God out to be completely incompetent because they died in captivity. They never were let out of exile. And so I wonder, when we hear the promises of God, is God lying to us? Is God completely incompetent to actually fulfill the promises that he makes to us? Or is it possible that maybe we're misunderstanding the promises? Maybe there's something more that we're supposed to see within the promises that God gives us. I mean, God could be a liar, and his promises might not ever extend beyond what I think they should be right in the moment. Um, God could be a liar, or maybe, again, maybe we're just not fully understanding his plan. But I do recognize that for many, this presumption that God is a liar is exactly where they land. They hear these promises of God. They expect certain things to happen. And so because those things don't happen... They choose to believe that God is a liar, he's incompetent, or maybe that he doesn't exist at all because they look at the suffering around them. And so, yeah, a good God couldn't possibly allow this kind of thing to happen, and so he just must not be. But maybe, maybe, God and his promises are not the issue. Maybe, just maybe, we're the ones with the issue. Looking at the promises of God wrong. Maybe we have not yet understood God's promises in the midst of suffering. And so maybe, just maybe, 
there's actually a glorious joy to experience, even in the midst of suffering, that speaks to what exactly God is actually promising to us. Let's consider that, the glorious joy of suffering. Look at chapter 3. At the very end of Habakkuk, we see a very famous prayer. Habakkuk, after uh, this back and forth with God in verse 17 of verse 3, he says, though the fig trees, or though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, basically, things have gone really bad. There is a lot of suffering before us. Even though that's the case, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. In other words, though the suffering of life still comes, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of the prayers of Job. If you remember, Job was an upright man, righteous, and he had everything taken from him. He had done nothing to deserve the destruction that came upon him. But in the first chapter of Job, Job says that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Either way, blessed be the name of the Lord. Later on in chapter 13, he puts it this way, that though you slay me, or though you take everything from me, yet I will hope in him. Though he has taken everything from me, everything away from me, he may even take my life, I will still hope in him. What exactly does Habakkuk What do Habakkuk and Job understand about the promises of God that allow them to find joy and hope even in the midst of suffering? What is it that they see? Because they don't see God as a liar, but rather they see him as a God who should be worshipped. Blessed be the name of the Lord, one who should be honored and hoped in even in the midst of their suffering. What is it that they see? I think they see the exact same thing that the Apostle Paul and James saw. Fast forward many, many years. The Apostle Paul writes these words in Romans 8. He said, I consider that our present suffering are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What's that? Well, that is Paul looking at his suffering, thinking, all right, I've got one of two options right now as I look upon this suffering. I can let this suffering define who I am or what I believe about God Right? I can assume, you know, bring it to our own, our own contexts. I can assume the untimely death or the financial burdens or the mental health struggles or in Paul's specific case in Romans 8, he's uh, wrestling with the persecution that he's experiencing as a result of his faith. I can look upon all these different opportunities to suffer and assume, again, that God is a liar who does not keep his promises or the other choice that Paul has before him is that I can use my suffering as a way of comparing that suffering to the glory that's to come. That there is a glory that is revealed in us, and I will use my present suffering as a way to focus on that glorious hope. That's what Paul's doing. Reminds me again of what James does. James 1, famous passage, James puts it this way, that I consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, that whenever you face trials of many kinds, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish uh, its work so that you may be mature and complete and lacking in nothing. 
Let me just speak to that for a moment. How often do we have that kind of perspective in the midst of our suffering? That there's joy to be had while in suffering, if we understand that suffering to be a test, a training of our faith, a training that leads to perseverance, which is a perseverance that matures me into one who trusts God all the more. My friends, for many of us here, some of the most difficult seasons of life, and I know many of your stories, and you've gone through difficult seasons. Going through those difficult seasons, even though they were hard, they also became opportunities for faith to be deepened in ways that a life without suffering never could have produced. I've seen that in my own life. I've seen that in many of your lives. Why? Habakkuk, Job, Paul, James, and many others recognize something within the suffering that are important about what it means to trust the actual promises of God. In particular, Job's words stick with me. That though you slay me, though you have allowed everything to be taken from me, I will hope in you. How does one have that kind of hope? The glorious joy in the midst of everything being stripped away. Well, it's because the hope that they're describing is, is rooted in something that is not, fi- that is, uh, not finite, that is not temporal. You know, their hope is not rooted in physical or mental health. It's not rooted in their financial security. It's not rooted in their thriving relationships or their ability to find purpose in life. None of those things. All those things can be taken from us. Instead, their hope is in the same place that Jeremiah insists Israel find their hope in the midst of exile. Through Jeremiah, God promised, if you remember, he said that I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Keywords. If God is not a liar, it means then that the home that he's carrying them back to is actually not a home that's ultimately rooted in a land that could be taken away, but a home where all of God's people will find rest and security and a glorious joy, a place where no brutal empire can come and conquer, a place where all people cease from being exiles in foreign lands. I'm giving you a lot of Bible verses here, but 1 Peter 2 tells us that right now, my friends, we are sojourners and exiles. Philippians 2 tells us that our citizenship is not here in this world, but that it's elsewhere. Hebrews 13 tells us that here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. In other words, like Israel and Babylon, we are not home. But rather, right now, we are in exile. And as a result, we experience the discomfort and the suffering that comes to those in exile. But God did not lie to those who died in Babylon. And God has not lied to you about the suffering that you're experiencing. Do you know uh, what it ultimately looks like for God to bring his people home? It's that he promises he has not forgotten us, that he's not going to leave us in exile. But again, back to Philippians 2, we're told that our citizenship, right, our true home is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13 tells us that, yeah, there's no lasting city that's here, but we seek a city to come. 
And that's a city that we see described in Revelation 21. It's a city that will descend from heaven and be established on earth, and it will be ruled by King Jesus. And we are able to experience suffering now with glorious uh, joy and eager anticipation, with a perseverance of faith because of our Savior. Jesus Christ promises us that he has not forgotten his people. And one day he will return to bring us home. And actually, that home will actually be brought to us. Right? Heaven is not some disembodied, ethereal, ethereal, floating spirituality out there somewhere. Heaven is a restored creation, one without suffering or pain. That's our true home. But until that time, our suffering, and hear me on this, my friends, our suffering is an opportunity for us to consciously be reminded that this life is not everything. The ailments, the suffering of family, the death through a pandemic, the pervasiveness of war, the struggles of my finances, even if everything is stripped away, though he slay me, through it all, we are reminded this is not our home. This is what it feels like to be in exile. Jesus is our home. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our glorious joy, regardless of what life brings. Jesus is how we know that God is not a liar. Jesus is how we know that God is a promise keeper and he will fulfill his promises to bring us home. So my encouragement to be to all of us that in the suffering that we experience, to recognize that that suffering is an opportunity to remind ourselves that we aren't home and that we can have joy because home is to come with our Savior. I pray that the Spirit of God helps us experience the same kinds of hope that Habakkuk and Job and Paul and James experienced. He make it so. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you see us in the midst of our suffering. You're not a distant God who does not care. You're not a distant God who cannot hear our struggles and our questions. God, you're near and you're close. And God, as we listen, we can hear your promises. The promise that you have not forgotten your people. A people that have been exiled in a world that is broken, full of suffering and death. You have not forgot us and you have not abandoned us, but instead you promise us that you will bring us home. A home that is to come when our Savior one day returns. When we experience the full and complete restoration of the cosmos. This is the Christian story. This is what we hope for. This is what we look to. And so, Lord, would you give us eyes to see that hope of a coming day when there will be no more mourning, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. And until we experience that one day, help us trust in you all the more. Help us to be able to, those, to pray those kinds of prayers, like Habakkuk and Job and Paul and James. Help us see the joy, even in the midst of suffering. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.